0: Uh, For the last month, we've been learning together about the gospel, the good news. Uh, Christians believe that Jesus has come to set us free, and not just us, but everyone, and that is really good news. And we all know that good news ought to be shared. Uh, When you get into the college that you had wanted to go to, or when you become engaged, or when the baby comes along, or takes his first steps, in moments like that, the excitement compels you You want to share that with people that you care about, and so you reach out to tell them the good news. You want to tell them what happened, and so you naturally go in moments like that to tell. The gospel, in some ways, is like that. A news which is so good when it's grasped. Not good advice, but news which is so good that you want to go tell it to the people that you care about. But anyone who's tried to go do that will know that sharing the gospel is different in some important ways from sharing other kinds of news. You know what I mean? For starters, the gospel is more difficult to share than a video of your baby taking her first steps. Uh, It's easier to show someone your acceptance letter from Stanford than it is to explain the atonement and how Jesus' death reconciles us to God. Uh, The gospel involves concepts and ideas that are remote to people in the 21st century and especially in the West, and this is different from the other kinds of good news that we'll want to share. Now, there's a second difference, uh, and, and, and this one's significant. Uh, many people that you know and care about who are good people will have baggage associated with the church that will predispose them for good reasons to be antagonistic or dismissive of Christianity. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. Which makes the sharing, sharing of the gospel even more challenging. No one hears that his friend got engaged and says, I don't believe it, I won't believe it. It seems made up, unless, of course, that friend is hideous in the extreme. (laughs) But with the gospel, there are things in the past for many folks that will cause them to feel resistance to hearing anything shared about the the gospel, about religion that might be good. Uh, A cynicism that maybe will seem impossible to us. Uh, Then there's a third fact that goes along with these other two. And it is this difference between the gospel and every other bit of news. And this is a difference that really is only shared by people who deep down inside believe that Jesus is for everyone. And the difference is that the gospel will feel that it is more important than any other kind of news. The most important news to know that the trouble all around us has been solved by God already and that we're invited to accept that and live accordingly. And if it is true, and here again, I know that there are in this room some who will believe it and others who are still skeptical, but if it is true, for those of us who believe it, it means that we have to work at figuring out how to share it. And that's what I want to do this morning with our very last time together on this particular theme, the good news, is to talk about how to share it. Not because... We feel like we have to, but because it's so good that the people we care about ought to know about it. Uh, last week after the third service, there was a girl who's in sixth grade here at the church who waited while others talked to me. And after they left, she said, Pastor Christian, I have a question for you. Uh, my friend uh, lives in a family that doesn't believe in God at all. And then she asked me, I want to know how to share the gospel with her. Can you help me figure out how to do that? I thought that was Wonderful. And and what I want to give this morning is a picture of how to do that. It's not going to be a formula that works like the instruction manual works for something that you buy in the store. It's not like that. But on the other hand, in the story that we've been studying each week, the story of the uh, the folks in Samaria who are uh, freed by what God does, in that story and then also in stories in the New Testament, there are some very clear patterns that will help us. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to be helpful to you, uh, if you are a person who believes, in thinking about how to share that with others. And if you're not a person who believes, I hope that for you to see what Christians believe will help you move closer to faith for really one reason and one reason only. It's because I think that it will be good for you. So, first, the story of what happened in Samaria. Um... This will be review if you've been here each week. If you're here for the first time, I'll be brief. Uh, The ancient city of Samaria was under siege by a foreign enemy who had put their tents in a big circle around that city, starving the inhabitants of that place, making it so no food would come to them. And the reason they were in that predicament was simple. It was they had departed as people from God's way. They were actually God's own people. And that's not a judgment, first of all, Against them, as a very simple statement of how it works in the world in which we find ourselves. When we go away from God, it's bad for us. And that's what was happening in Samaria. And it just so happened that the enemy that was ruining life for those people was so strong that no one in the city could do anything to change it. And that also is the story that the Bible tells about the whole world that the world as it is is captive to a power that is too strong for any person to fix. And the results of that power, sin, transgression, iniquity is that life is bad for everyone. Now in the story of Samaria, against all odds, God intervenes out of compassion and chases away the enemy so that the people are saved even though no one in the city knows it. So they go on starving until there are four lepers who by chance really discover that the enemy is gone and all of the provisions needed to bring life to the entire city are there. And, and, and we've talked about the gospel in these terms, that Jesus has come to defeat the, the power of death and enemy, the enemy of sin and transgression. Why? Because he loves us, everyone, not some, but everyone. And Christians are people who've come to know that. And we talked about the change that makes this morning. I want you to see what happens after the lepers discover that the enemies are gone when they go back to tell the news because I want us to learn how to tell the news to people who don't know it yet. And so we'll start there in in, uh, 2 Kings 7, verse 10 tells about what happens after the lepers discover this and go back. Look at what it says. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We went to the Aramean camp, but there was no one to be seen or heard there. Uh, they traveled back through the night and told the gatekeepers what they saw nothing but the horses tied, the donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. And then the gatekeepers called out and proclaimed it to the king's household. There, in a very simple way, we see how the lepers take responsibility for the news that they've been given to know. They go back to the people who don't know it, and in the simplest possible way, without commentary and without editorializing on their part, without any anxiety to try to force or coerce people there into some position of belief, they simply report to them what has happened. Uh, The enemy is gone, and all the food that we need is there. It's only the horses and the donkeys, but no soldiers present. Good news. Out of his own compassion, God has changed everything for us. And they go and they report it in that way. The news is then taken by the gatekeeper, passed along to the king. And now, here we're gonna learn what happens when the good news is shared. Now the news gets to the king. And watch, watch how he responds. This is verse 12. The king got up in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Arameans have prepared against us. They know that we are starving. So they've left the camp to hide themselves in the the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. The king is a skeptic. He hears the news that the enemies have been chased off, and he will not believe it. And he will not believe it because his heart is convinced that nothing this good could possibly have happened. It must be a trap. They must have gone to hide in the shadows and then they're gonna come and destroy us. If you were here earlier when I shared more of the details of this story, you know that it was less than a day earlier that that very same man, the king, was there with the prophet Elisha. He came, the king came with his own advisor and said, the reason everything's bad in the city is because God has forgotten us and we shouldn't hope in him any longer. And in that moment, Elisha the prophet told the king and his, uh, his advisor, he said to him, in less than a day, everything will be fixed. All the food you need will be available. The, the man of God had told the king that everything would be fixed, but he still will not believe it. To him, it seems too good to be true. Now, if we pause the story here, we have a lesson for all of us that is very important for us to take to heart, and it is that the good news of what God has done is hard to believe. And not, first of all, for people who are outside of the community of faith, but even for people who are in the community of faith. This king was the king of Israel. He was supposed to be the one who told the people to trust God, even for him, the idea that God had intervened to change things seemed like it was too good to be true, and based on what he could see in the city where he lived, he wouldn't believe it. And, and this teaches us, uh, the, 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 the events of Samaria teach us how it goes, because in our, own day, in our own day, the news that God has changed things will often look too good to be true, especially when we see the people who are starving for God's presence all around us, wouldn't you say? And and it's, it's remarkable that the pattern that we see here in Samaria persisted right up into the time of Jesus. We are so thankful when we think about the birth of Jesus because we say, here's the good news that the Savior has come. But you know, if you read through the New Testament, that it was Jesus' own people who had a hard time believing that he was the Messiah in person. And in fact, that's why they organized his crucifixion. It was hard for people to believe that God would come out of love to rescue his people. And so, this teaches us that if we are going to share the good news, which we will want to because we love the people around us who we care about, we should expect that it will be met with resistance. And that does not change the fact, on the other hand, that we are responsible for sharing it. And so, we need help. Uh, so a sixth grader will come and say to her pastor, can you help me know how to share this good news with my friend who doesn't believe it? And so many of you will have friends and family members who don't believe and you will want to know how can I be a part of God's helping them believe? I'm speaking the truth, aren't I? And then others in here, maybe you are a skeptic and you come week after week and you're waiting to believe. Well, I'm so glad you're here. I I I believe that it's our responsibility to understand how to share it because what God wants is for everyone to know the truth so that they can come and have the food which he has prepared freely and because of his love. So how does it work? Uh, If we go to the New Testament, uh, we are thankful to discover that there are lots of stories of what it looks like when someone who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't believe in him meets him and then comes to faith and then goes on to share it with someone else they care about. If you read the Gospel of John in the first chapter of of that Gospel, you'll see that over and over again there are stories recounted in which Jesus interacts with ordinary people when they meet him everything changes for them and they want to go along with him and then they go and invite others onto the uh, journey and into the adventure with them. Uh, In in one story, we see Jesus interacting with Andrew and his brother Simon, They're fishermen, and he brings them along and they decide that he's the one that we want to go along with. Uh, Jesus spends the evening at their place in Bethsaida, that's where they live, and the next morning they go out and they repeat it. By the way, does someone know who Simon is, his name is changed. It's time to show off in church. What's his name changed to? Yes, awesome. You're not better than anyone else, watch it. (laughs) But Andrew and Simon come together and this is why I share that detail. Jesus changes people. He does. And he doesn't wanna change you into someone that you weren't meant to be. He wants to change you into the rock that God made you to be, every one of you. And so that happens, and then the next day, they go to a new place to see if they can bring some more followers together, to see if they can help others see the good news of Jesus. And that's where I want you to focus in with me to to discover four lessons, okay? Four lessons for you, whether you're a sixth grader uh, or school is a distant memory to you for how to share the gospel, okay? Here's the story. It's John 1, verse 43. Uh, This is what we read. The next day... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That's the city where Jesus was the day before, where he met Andrew and Peter, and they became followers. They had stayed in Bethsaida the night before, and they got up in the morning, and they decided to go to Galilee the very town where Philip, who must have been a childhood friend of of Andrew and Simon, where he had moved because they must have said to Jesus, hey, let's go find our friend Philip. He'd make a great addition to this community here that you're beginning to build. And so they did. So they went to Galilee and Jesus found Philip. And in the simplest way, he said, follow me, which to to Philip would have sounded, coming from a, a traveling teacher, like the invitation of a rabbi to join his school to come along with his group so that he could begin learning also with these others who were friends of his. And, and anyone who comes to follow Jesus, in, in that decision, you find yourself in school with Jesus. You find yourself learning and inviting to be a part of, uh, invited to be a part of a community of learning. And that's what happened with Philip. Now, the moment Philip was invited, watch what he does, okay? This is, uh, th- this is in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus son of Joseph from Nazareth as soon as philip discovers jesus just like anyone who discovers good news will want to he thinks of his friend nathaniel who he cares about and he goes to his friend and he tells him Good news, we found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote. You must come along. He wants to share it with his friend, Nathaniel, because he cares about his friend. And that's what you do when you care about someone, you share the good news that you found. Now, what Philip refers to when he tells his friend, Nathaniel, about Jesus has in it our first lesson for how to share. Look again at what he refers to when he talks to Nathaniel. He refers to the law, and also the prophets. Now in the first century, in that environment, uh, folks with the name Nathaniel are people who know that that is code for the scriptures. That's what it means. Nathaniel was someone who was interested in what Moses and the prophets had to say. He was a student of the Torah. He had spent his time in the scriptures trying to discover the signs that would finally prove that God's Messiah had come to deliver his people. And Philip knew that about his friend. And knowing that his friend would find it personally interesting to hear something about the scriptures, well then, he spoke to his friend about Jesus in a way that was personal. And that's our first lesson. When you share about Jesus, you should be personal. You should let the identity of the person you're talking to shape how you choose to share about Jesus Uh, if you have a friend who has never read the Bible at all uh, and doesn't know anything about it starting your conversation with that friend about Jesus by explaining how he fulfills the messianic expectations that have been awoken by Moses and the prophets won't be effective do you see it Right? They will say, I could not care less what those old texts say and for good reason. And so it would be nonsense to start there because it's not personally relevant to them to begin there even though it's true, it won't touch them like it definitely would touch Nathaniel because that's what Nathaniel was interested in. But listen, maybe your friend who doesn't care at all about what the scriptures have to say has always struggled with feelings of guilt and you know this because your friend has told you Throughout your friendship, how bad he feels about all the things that he's done wrong. Now, if that's your friend, then when you talk to him about Jesus, you should begin by saying something about forgiveness. Maybe something like, you know, ever since we've been friends, I see how deeply guilty you are for the failures in your past. You know, I've not told you this before, but Jesus, the one I believe in, is the one who comes to us with forgiveness. I think you should know about him. Maybe you'd be freed a bit. Can you see the difference? It's personal. Maybe you're, now you're thinking, no, my friend doesn't care about the Bible. And in fact, every time he does something wrong, he feels proud of himself. So you don't want to start there, but maybe this is a friend who, uh, every time she does endeavor something new and does the wrong thing and couldn't care less, she finds herself f- deeper and deeper in this longing for some meaning in her life. Do some of you have friends like that? Who are always looking for some reason for their life that's bigger than themselves. Maybe you need to come and say, you know, Jesus comes to each person who's willing to listen and actually gives them God's own plan for their life. And you know, you may not believe this yet, but I do. I think he has a plan for you. And if only you discover it, then you'd find yourself renewed and and it would be good for you. Uh, that, That would be a way to be personal to that friend, okay? Maybe you have a friend who's anxious or fearful all the time. You tell them, Jesus invites people to come and trust him and he takes away anxiety. That's who he is. Whatever, it, whatever your friend or your family member or the person you're thinking of, whatever is personal for them, chances are you can begin there. And that's what we see happening here with Philip and Nathaniel. And that's meant to be a good lesson for us when it comes to sharing that we should first of all be personal. Now, uh, before uh, we get too far here, and start to believe, okay, is it going to just be like a slam dunk if I just figure out the right way to approach them? We'll see in this story that that's not how it works because there's a second lesson in the way that Nathaniel responds to Philip's good intentions of being personal. And it's here in verse 46, and this is where our second lesson is. I want you to notice how Nathaniel responds. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I heard someone up here go, Hoop! <laughs> I, I imagine that that's what happened for Philip in this moment because Philip started with Moses and then he mentioned the prophets and then he told his friend Jesus' name, which means in the original language, God saves. He indicates Jesus' lineage as the son of Joseph who was from the line of David All of these are facts in Moses and the prophets, which point to the identity of Jesus as being the one who God had promised. And then almost as a throwaway at the end, uh, Philip mentions his place where he came from, Nazareth, and that's the only thing, the only thing that his friend Nathaniel hears and comments on. The throwaway place. uh, Can anything good come from that place? Uh, It's almost as if He chooses willfully not to listen to the substance and instead just narrow in on the one thing that he can use as a pretext for rejecting out of hand his friend's enthusiasm. And you can imagine that if you were Philip, that might be a bit crushing unless you had this expectation. And this really is our second lesson. And you should go into every conversation with your friends about Jesus with this expectation. It is that we should expect disbelief because many Good people who we care about and love have good reasons not to think that anything good can come from Nazareth. And our Nazareth maybe is the church or religion or people who come with Jesus' name. For good reasons, the people that you love and wanna share Jesus with will, will already be predisposed to not believe that anything good. Have you experienced this here on your own and you're sharing? Yes or no? Yes, for, 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 for one thing, there are widely held beliefs about the church and its history that make well-meaning people want to stay away, that the church is responsible for pressing down intellectual growth and scientific advancement and has really hindered our forward movement as, as a, a world. That's one idea. Or the church has always been that institution that uses all of its money for itself and never helps other people out in the world. Or here's one, that the church has been behind every atrocious war that has ruined human history. Have you heard these ideas? Yes? Listen, the truth about them is that even though you can find instances in our history which support each one, they're actually, they're gross m- miscaricatures of what the church has actually done in, in history. It's, it's a fact that it's bad historians who have spread those myths. It's true. In the the early centuries of the church's life, without it, the welfare system and and caring for orphans and the hospital system itself would never have been invented. The church has used its resources throughout its history to really bless this planet and change it for the good. And it continues to do so even to this day, even though there are notable examples to to the contrary. Same with science. In the Middle Ages, it was the monks who actually enabled intellectual development to keep going forward. And there are way more examples of the churches encouraging scientific advancement than there are of those moments where it has pushed it down and they're there. And the same goes with wars. Uh, It is only when the church has turned the power uh, of its authority over to the state that the church has promoted violence in the name of God, which would never happen uh, in the name of anyone who actually trusted Jesus. So those myths, though, do keep well-meaning people away from the church. That's for one. Now, there's a second fact, which is not a myth, and it is that there are high-profile atrocities that have been committed by leadership in the church in our own day that cause disgust and are reprehensible for any person who has any conscience at all. I'm thinking of the way that uh, churches have systematically participated in the abuse of children. You know what I'm talking about? And of course, that also leads well-meaning people to say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And, and, And you can add to that a third less sensational but equally profound reason that good folks have to disbelieve, it is those instances when someone who identifies himself or herself as a follower of Jesus and then behaves in a way that completely misrepresents Jesus, it's no wonder that people become skeptical. There are high-profile folks in our media who do this every day, yes? Just as there are people in our midst, and will be some of them, God help us, who don't represent Jesus well in the way we behave. I once was asked to do uh, premarital counseling for a couple who wanted to get married. And when I sat down with them, I asked, do you guys have a church that you're a part of? And, and they shared very simply, we used to go to a church, but then when, uh, this is what the man said, when I was invited to do Little League coaching, it was the way that the parents that I saw in church on Sunday behaved at the games on Saturdays to the opposing parents on the other team that made me embarrassed to be associated with them. And so I stopped going to church. So if we go out to share Jesus, we should expect disbelief. And not because people are bad, but because there will be many reasons not to believe, just as it was for Nathanael. Now, we don't know exactly what it was about Nazareth that made Nathanael say, I'm not buying it. But there was something, and and that's something we have to take seriously. Now, in this moment, uh, Nathanael could have given up, excuse me, Philip could have given up and said, well... Uh, I'm sorry I brought up Jesus, and that's it, but he didn't. And what he did instead shows us a third lesson, which is absolutely brilliant. Look at the way that he responds. In the second half of verse 46, we see Philip's response. Philip said to him, come and see. Okay, there in three simple words are a response which really is hard to improve upon. Uh, Nathaniel rejected Philip does not become defensive. Uh, He does not offer a list of reasons that his friend should believe. He doesn't try to defend his position of faith. He simply invites Nathaniel with these three words, come and see, listen now, to pursue his doubt in the presence of Jesus with his friend Philip. And those bits, each one of them, is absolutely critical. What he does is what we are always able to do. It is he invites and he accompanies. And that's the third lesson for us. If we really want to see a friend come along and get to know Jesus, we should not tell them, you have to stop this doubting. You should believe just like I do. Uh, don't ask any questions. Just be quiet about it. No, instead he says, come and see with me. And, and, and that's different than saying go. He doesn't say go figure it out or go look into it and see what happens. Uh, it, it's, it's the, the decision in person to say, I'm gonna come with you and I'm gonna accompany you and bring you to the place where even with all of your questions and your doubts, you can see Jesus the one who has been so convincing to me. Uh, now listen, as soon as I tell you that that's what you ought to do, I want to, to put this uh, in the light here, that I'm, I'm implicating myself as the pastor of this church and I'm also asking everyone who's responsible for the nature of Renaissance Church, whether you're a leader, Or a staff member or an elder in this church, I'm putting us in a position of being responsible for creating a church community that has room for Nathaniel's. That is a place where skeptics can be invited and they will neither directly nor indirectly feel that they're not welcome until they think like we do. No, we actually are responsible for creating an environment where someone who doesn't believe and has good reasons not to is still able to come and completely experience the welcome, first of all, of Jesus, because that's how Jesus works. He welcomes folks, not when they've got the answers, but when they have questions, and we ourselves are responsible for it as well. Would you, if you feel like you're willing to be a part of that with me, would you tell me? Okay, please, because, listen, this is why, because we've, experience something so good and we want to share it with people who have not experienced it and, and the way that will work is when we invite people and then accompany them on their journey. Philip, Philip here teaches us as individuals and as a church to practice saying things like this to our skeptical friends, okay? Like this, how about we work together in, in a close and honest investigation of the facts, Let's talk together about the facts that make you skeptical and I'll share with you about the facts that make me believe and let's see what happens. That could be an approach that you learn from Philip here. Or how about this one? You could say to your friend, why don't we read some of the New Testament together and then we'll talk about it and see what we discover there. This may seem far-fetched to you, I'll tell you, when I was a pastor in Red Bank, there was a couple that came to our church. She believed in Jesus. She was a Christian. He was an atheist. He was a scientist. He was a great, great young man. And he said, I don't believe she does, but I'm happy that I can come to a church where I'm allowed to be present anyway. I introduced him to another friend in the church who took him out and said, look, what if we have breakfast every week? You can talk to me about preparations for getting married, I've been down the road a bit and I can give you some advice and what if we read the Gospel of Luke together and we can see what happens? His name's Tom. He became a Christian Uh, and he now serves at that church on their board because when, when friends invite and accompany, what happens, listen now, and this is gonna lead us to our fourth lesson. What happens is not that the friend figures out the secret or trick to making their Uh, the person they want to share with, become a believer. That's not actually how it works. Uh, That's not how it works. But instead, what happens in moments like that is Jesus proves what is 100% true about Jesus, which is that he's completely trustworthy and he's got it under control. And we see that also in the story of Philip and Nathaniel. Look at what happens after uh, uh, Philip makes a suggestion. This is verse 47. Okay, so they go to Jesus, Watch. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. If we pause it there, we'll notice that before Nathanael and Philip arrived, Jesus was already on the lookout for them. And this is a theological truth about every one of you. It is that Jesus is already looking for you and for everyone you've ever met. And if you've come to know him and wandered off, he's waiting to see you again. Not to scold or reprimand you, but rather to joyfully welcome you back. And in this moment, we see that already as Jesus sees them coming and then begins to speak personally about Nathanael. And he gives him quite high praise. Here is a uh, a true Israelite, a man who's not gonna play games. I think there's something in his skepticism that's intellectually honest, and Jesus loves that. And so he mentions that about Nathanael as he comes. Watch what happens. Verse 48, Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, Jesus lets it out that he would already had his eye on him. Now, this exchange here, if we dwell on it, Uh, Maybe it doesn't seem all that extraordinary. Maybe Jesus was kind of snooping around that morning and he saw him there. It could be as simple as that. We don't know exactly how or why this information that Jesus gave to Nathanael made such an impression on him. But what we see is that when Jesus tells him that he'd already seen him before his friend even came, that something happens inside of Nathanael, listen now, which strictly speaking and from a human point of view is impossible to explain. But what it does is it evokes the following response from Nathanael. Look at verse 49. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What Jesus did when Nathanael was there with him changed him from a skeptic into somebody who gives the most brilliant and full expression of faith in relationship to Jesus almost that we have in all of the New Testament. Rabbi is his way of acknowledging, you are my teacher and I am your student. Calling him the son of God is a nod to his divinity, which already at his birth, the angels had proclaimed. But now Nathanael says, I believe it. You are God with us. And then he goes on to add, you are the king of Israel, that you're the one that our ancestors had longed for. And here you've come to rule in our presence. How did this happen? How could this change have come about in Nathanael if Philip asks that question, listen now, as you should ask if you ever bring a friend to Jesus and wonder how it's gonna come about. What Philip knows for sure is it had nothing to do with what he said because did you notice that that Philip said nothing in this exchange? He didn't bring him to Jesus and say, okay, get ready and start explaining Jesus. He just let Jesus do it. And Jesus did everything that was required and that teaches us our last lesson, which is to trust Jesus. And I I wanna say this in two ways. With every friend and every family member and every associate that you have who doesn't believe, you should trust Jesus. Don't worry. Don't feel like you've got to convince or cajole or argue for Jesus or somehow make a case for him. It's not up to you. Jesus is completely trustworthy with your friend. The only thing that you do have to do, as much as you can, is be personal with them. And now listen, if you're thinking none of the examples you shared worked, Christian, right? None of them worked you don't understand how resistant my friend is to Jesus, fine, then being personal with that friend of yours maybe means just being silent and not saying anything but being with them. And that's good enough. Jesus is trustworthy. But what you should do is, as you expect disbelief, not let it derail you and and invite and invite and invite on the journey, and come with them, and then trust Jesus with that friend. That's what you should do with them, and then here's the last thing I'm going to leave you with in this series on the gospel. It is a personal challenge to you now individually, and now don't think about your friend or anybody else. You should trust Jesus, and that's what the gospel says. Trust him to love you completely. Trust him to forgive you through and through, Trust him to take every one of your failures, all of your sin, all of your iniquity, every one of your transgressions and to take them away from you. Why? Trust Jesus to love you all the way from your past on into the future. Trust Jesus to never stop loving you. Trust Jesus Jesus, to believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Trust Jesus to heal you and to free you and to make you brand new today and then again tomorrow when you need it. Trust Jesus. The gospel is the good news that in Christ, God has delivered us from the power of the enemy by his own grace, by giving his life for us. And there's nothing more for us to do except for these two words, trust Jesus. Dear friends, receive the gospel. Believe and entrust yourself to Jesus and receive the new life that he alone can give. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me close us off with one final prayer. God, we love you so much and we thank you for the gift of the gospel, the gift that tells us that you have delivered uh, all from the power of the enemy through the gracious gift of your son, Jesus. God, help us believe and be reconciled to you in such a way that we take seriously your invitation to be your ambassadors. And then for the time that we've spent this morning, considering one last time the story of the lepers in Samaria and the story of Philip and his friend Nathaniel, help us be more effective at sharing the gospel with those who you love who don't know that yet. Make us your instruments. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.